All right. Good afternoon, City Bible Church. It's good to see you guys. Yes. Um, and it is it is a real joy to be with you guys as every Sunday. Um, I look forward to, to seeing your faces. And no matter what mood I'm in, and I think hopefully the same is true with you guys, you, we walk in to church and some of us, we're like ready to go. Others of us, you know, we walk in with a very heavy and a burdened heart. Others of us are just kind of, kind of a little numb. And my uh, my belief is that when we come together, the Holy Spirit uh, is at work in us. And my belief is that at the end of our time together, uh, you will leave this time with a renewed sense of joy, a renewed sense of you know I'm glad I'm here. God did something in my life to remind me why I believe, to remind me that I belong to God, to remind me that, yeah, this is really good to be in Christian community. And so that's going to be my, uh, my both prayer and, and uh, hope and what I trust the Lord will do in your life as, as well as my own during this time. We're continuing on in our series called Joy, which is really the theme of the Epistle of Philippians. And we've been going verse by verse through this epistle for many months. And right now, our next passage is Philippians chapter 4, which we'll bring up in a few moments. But today's sermon is about two things. Number one, it is about um, the importance of Christian community and bringing spiritual joy into your life when you're part of a church and how that works in your life, uh, how God uses the community of faith to bring spiritual joy into your life, number one. And number two, Paul's going to talk about a contrasting uh, point, which is uh, what happens to a church when there's disunity, when there's disunity in the church. Okay, so those are his main two points here today. So let's stand together, and uh, we'll read just three verses today. From Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Two very important topics. I think you could preach this church in any church in America today and it would have extreme relevance. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Paul writes this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 2. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this afternoon we stand Uh, at attention, at the reading of your holy word. And we also stand as those of us who believe uh, because we count ourselves as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, of eternal salvation for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in him for our salvation. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray that during our time right now in your word, we would be reminded of the importance of Christian community, of being part of a Christian church that will help renew our spiritual joy. I pray that City Bible Church would not be among those counted, those churches that experience extreme disunity, have members fighting with one another, and it affects the whole church. May we overcome that, Lord, because we know that a unified church is the type of church that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against. And we pray that that would be your will for City Bible Church. And so help us along that path, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may have a seat. Thank you very much. So today what we're talking about is two things according to this passage. We're talking about the importance of Christian community and the spiritual joy that you get when you're part of a church, when you're actually in relational community with God's people. And we're going to talk a few moments later about disunity, the opposite point. And I think this is very important for a couple of reasons. Number one is there are many Christians 
out there who do not feel the need to be part of a church. Uh, that was not the case in the New Testament. That historically has not been the case throughout church history. It is the case here in our Western context in places like America where I love my country. You do too. It's a beautiful country. We emphasize here in America individualism, personal autonomy, freedom of choice, and those are amazing things that have made this country great. However, uh, when we start applying all of that to our Christian faith, one of the unfortunate byproducts has been what? That we can tend to look at our Christian faith and say, well, it's only about a personal, individual relationship with Jesus Christ where I am autonomous and free. I don't submit to anything organized. Religion, church, no. It's just about me, mano y mano with God. And that can be a very uh, spiritually dangerous, spiritually unhealthy place to be in because what you don't realize, which we're going to talk about in a moment, is when you look at your Christian faith and say, it's just me and God, I don't really need the church, uh, there are two things that are happening in your life, whether you realize it or not. Number one is you are missing out as a Christian by not being part of a church on one of the main ways that God has given to bring you spiritual joy, which is to be part of a community called the church. And you're missing that in your own life. You, you wonder, why am I so miserable? Why am I not enduring in my faith? Why is, is I just feel swayed to the world and I'm just trying to limp, you know, limp through my Christian Part of it is because some of us might look at church as something disposable when we don't have anything else on our schedule. I'm not saying any one person here, but certainly that's endemic. That's endemic here in our Western context. Too many Christians are saying church is optional, especially coming out of the pandemic, right? We're all on video. I'll look at it online, etc. And so that's what's happening. And the second thing that's happening in your life when you see yourself as a Christian, not part of Christian community, is you're actually robbing, spiritually robbing, other Christians of the joy that you can bring to them when you're part of the body of Christ, because the body of Christ cannot function. It needs the ear, the eye, the leg, etc., the arm. And when you're an arm or a leg or an eye and you're not here, um, the body of Christ is not functioning properly. And so just think of how many times in your life you have been part of coming to a church service or, and, and someone else blessed you because they were physically there, right? So very important. And I think the second reason why this uh, sermon is very important is because how many of you uh, have experienced church where there's been disunity? And when I say disunity, I'm not talking about you had a disagreement with one person one time. That happens all the time, okay? No matter what church you go to. When I say disunity, I'm talking about how many of us have had actual experiences in church where there's pretty big issues of disunity, okay? And maybe it doomed a church. If you have not had that experience, you certainly know the experience of disunity in the, in, in, in the macro perspective of just life. You know what it's like to be in your family and to see disunity among the spouses, you know what it's like to be in your family and to have disunity between the parents and the children and how miserable that experience can be. You know what it's like as well as I do, especially over the past, uh, what, two and a half years? What have we seen in our macro culture of disunity? We have seen massive disunity over politics, the 2020 presidential election. We have seen massive disunity over COVID. Is it true? Is it not? Mask or not? We have seen massive disunity over the George Floyd protests. BLM, what do we do with that? Do we believe? Do we not? We have seen massive disunity in terms of how we handle school shootings, uh, guns or no, video games or no, what's the cause of it? And so we're divided. We're polarized as a country. We all understand the idea of disunity, whether you're part of a church or not. Same thing can happen in a church. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these three verses and raise the topic of positively what happens when we're in community in a healthy way and negatively as well. 
Okay, and so let's go to verse 1 here. Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 1. There's a lot that he says here. Therefore, let's stop there. When he says therefore in verse 1, what does he mean therefore? Therefore comes after something, right? As you remember the last week that we've shared, last couple weeks, when he says therefore, he's making a transition from what he has just talked about. What has he just talked about? If you look back in chapter 3, I'm going to summarize real quick. Paul has just said throughout chapter 3, number one, I used to live and be so you know, confident in my worldly successes and my worldly abilities, my worldly talent, my worldly knowledge, Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as to zeal persecuting the church, etc. I was so proud of that. I trust in that for God's And then he says, that is all animal poop. It's rubbish compared... Chapter 3, to knowing Christ. To knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of suffering in the way he did. That's what I care about as Paul. He has said that previously. He has also said previously, uh, Philippian church, I have provided an example for you of what it looks like to live the Christian faith. Philippian church, uh, look at my example, look around at your own church, and copy, imitate those in your congregation that have followed my, Paul's example, as I, Paul, have followed the example of Christ. Okay, And so strive for the prize of the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, leaving behind the things, uh, my failures of the past, and striving for that the Christian faith is a forward-moving faith. So he says, therefore... He's come from that. And then he says, my brothers, verse 1, whom I love and long for, and then skip down to uh, the last part of verse 1, my beloved. All right? So he talks to the Philippian church, and he says, you Philippian church, you are my brothers, brothers in two ways. You're my brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters in Christ, as, and more generally is what he means. So we're related in our common faith. We're brothers or brothers and sisters, essentially. And secondly, I love you. I long for you. I look at you and, and I consider you my beloved. Paul had a special relationship with the Philippian church. I think that... Um, the church at Philippi, you know, he wrote to many churches, right? You can through, see throughout the New Testament. Church at Philippi, Church at Thessalonica, Church at Galatia, Corinth, Rome, Ephesus, Colossae, etc. There were some churches that Paul wrote to where the tone in which he addresses them, like when you look at the tone in which he addresses um, the church at Galatia or Corinth, it's like, hey, we're brothers in Christ, but I got to correct you, okay? Galatia... You're, you're, you're falling prey to a false gospel. i got to correct you. What's wrong with you? Corinth, you guys are carnal Christians. I have to correct you. So there's this sense where he's more of a corrective tone with them. There are other churches like the church at Rome and Ephesus where Paul writes to them, and it's almost kind of this neutral feel. Hey, we're all beloved in Christ. Here's a bunch of doctrine and a bunch of admonitions and encouragements of how the church should be organized, how you should live your Christian faith. When you look at how he addresses the church at Philippi here, or Thessalonica, or even Colossae, okay, those three churches, there's really this sense that Paul was, I'm really proud of you, Colossian church. You're, you're bearing fruit all over the place. I'm really proud of you, Thessalonica, because you have become a model for all the churches in Macedonia. Philippi. Man, I love you. I long for you. I'm proud of you. I can't wait to see you. And so Philippi, as he's writing this, when he says, brother, love and long for my beloved, there is a, there's a, there's a sense of pride, good pride, that he has in the church of Philippi. He uh, planted this church in Acts 16. As you remember, he led Lydia and a group of women who were by a stream to Christ. He used uh, her house as a base of operations, and then he was uh, thrown into a jail, beaten with Silas, released. He left. Philippi was a city and a church that throughout Paul's ministry, he visited at least three times, probably four times throughout his entire ministry. He knows them. They know him. 
Uh, he's very proud of them. And why was Paul, why was he saying, uh, you know, I love you. I long for you. I, you are my beloved. And there's at least three reasons. Number one, he said in Philippians chapter one, that you have participated in the gospel um, until now. So the first reason Paul really loved this church is he could look around and he could say, you know what, Philippians, uh, you are genuine believers. You have participated in the gospel. I'm proud of that. You've given your lives to Christ. You're pursuing Christ. Not perfect. But man, I'm proud of that. So he looked at them and said, there's fruit here. There's a relationship with the Lord. And so he loved them. Secondly, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul had actually sent his co-workers, co-laborers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to Philippi to check in on them, to build them up. And so there was this sense of, of Paul's team that was committed to Philippi, not just him. And number three, in Philippians chapter four, which we'll get to in a few weeks, the church at Philippi, it says in Philippians chapter four, was the only church in all of Macedonia that supported Paul financially during that time period. Okay, the church at uh, you know Thessalonica and uh, Berea, which were also in Macedonia, they didn't financially support Paul. Philippi did financially. So these are reasons why Paul's looking at them. He's writing them and says, you're my brothers in Christ. I love you. I can see you're genuine Christians. Uh, you know, we've seen each other many times. Uh, led you to Christ. And by the way, if you're, this is one of the things that happens when you are actively involved in evangelistic lifestyle. When you act, so God is actually using you to lead people to Christ. You have a special bond with other Christians that you've led to Christ. It's just like being a parent. You know, you have a different bond with your own kids than you do with different. That's obvious. It's the same thing when you lead people to Christ. When you are actively, you see people come to Christ, whether it's in your youth group or as an adult or wherever it might be, you feel a special connection to them. All right. And so Paul, Paul certainly did here. And he says in verse one, not only do I love you, long to see you, but what? I'm looking at you, Paul says, and you are my joy. You are my crown. When he says crown, he, he means what he said to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, uh, where, um, or, or thereabouts in chapter 2. He said, Thessalonians, you are my joy and crown of boasting. So that's what he probably means when he says crown. Crown of boasting simply means, I, Paul, look at you. Man, I'm so proud of you. I want to boast to you about the... Do you, parents, do you boast about your kids on social media? To, your, to, to their grandkids, to your friend, oh, look, at, look at my beautiful child, what they did, you know, like, etc. Um, of course we do. If you're a parent, everyone parent, and, and, and you should. You should be proud, and your kids should see that. Same thing with Paul. He's like, hey, you, you guys, I, I'm telling you what these wonderful Philippian believers did. Let me boast about what they're doing with their lives and following the Lord, right? And Paul took joy from that. Now, follow me on this. This is really important. This is where it kind of gets to you and I, right? When Paul says, Philippians, notice this. He is saying, I, uh, the singular in verse 1, whom I, so he's talking about himself, and he says that they're my, again, joy and crown, or crown of boasting. Notice this. He is not saying, Philippian church, you are the Lord's joy. You are the Lord's crown of boasting, although he would uh, agree with that. He is saying, Philippian church, in addition to that, towards the Lord, you Philippians are not just have a relationship with the Lord, but you Philippians are my, Paul. You are my source of joy. You church are my crown of boasting translation paul looked at the church and not just as god at at god and he said you are my source of joy now god's the primary source of joy he's not saying that but he is not negating the role of the church in his spiritual life in terms of god using the church to what? Produce spiritual joy in his life. Let me say that again. He is remembering that God uses the church 
to bring spiritual joy into the heart of believers. Now, you look at Paul, and you say, well, we're not Paul. Agreed. Think about Paul, right? What brought Paul spiritual joy? You say, well, Pastor Chris, that's easy. Number one, Paul had joy because he met Jesus. Acts 9, he hears the voice of Jesus. If I met Jesus and I heard the voice, of course I'd have joy in my Christian life, right? Granted, right? We can't imitate that. That's unique to Paul. He, like, met Jesus on Acts 9 in his conversion. Number two, what we also cannot replicate in terms of why Paul had spiritual joy was not just, like, meeting Jesus directly in that dramatic way, but secondly, we are not going to be transported directly to heaven to look around and see what heaven is like. Paul said that that's happened to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, when he's talking about himself, 14 years ago, there were, uh, I, I was transported into the third heaven. I looked around. It was amazing, right? If you saw a vision and you were taken to heaven, you would not lack in joy the rest of your Christian life, right? We can't replicate that about Paul. Um, we also cannot replicate about Paul that we don't write scripture. Paul knew that he was writing scripture. Peter knew that he was writing scripture. Second Peter chapter three talks about how they knew that they were writing scripture when they were writing it. That was a source of joy. You know, we're not going to write scripture. These guys are writing scripture. They knew it. That's a source of joy. Number four, they did miracles that we do not. Uh, Paul uh, in Acts 19, it says even handkerchiefs that touched Paul, that touched other people, brought them healing. All right, now, summary. Why did Paul have spiritual joy? There are things about Paul we cannot replicate. We don't hear the voice from Jesus. We uh, do not uh, have a vision of heaven in the same way he did. We're not writing scripture, and we don't do miracles. In that sense, he's unique. But there's at least a fifth aspect, which is what we can replicate. And this is why it's important to us beyond that about why Paul had joy. This guy's amazing, right? He's getting tortured. He's going forward with Christ. He's getting in prison. He's going forward with Christ. He's, he's devoting his whole life, and he gets beheaded. He gets martyred. He's, he's doing this with joy. Why? It's not just because of those things that we cannot replicate. There is a, at least a fifth reason. And that fifth reason is what? He looked around at the other believers that were coming to know Christ, that he participated in, and he said, man, that fires me up. That keeps me going. I'm looking at you and you and you. God has used me in your life for you to come to know Christ, you to grow in Christ. And man, I'm sitting in here in this prison cell for two years in which he's writing Philippians. But that's okay. It's okay that I'm here for two years. Why? It's because I'm looking at you and go, man, this is awesome. Because I see you carrying on in the Lord. See you carrying on. When you step into a church, you guys... Um, and this is where it gets to a practical application for us. There's a very similar dynamic they have to realize that's happening, whether you realize it or not. When you're part of a church, what happens is that the Lord in the ideal situation uses other believers in your life to bring you joy. And the reason why is because when you're actually part of a church, I'm not talking about attending for an hour and a half, just kind of staring around and leaving at the end of the service. Nobody knows your name. You don't know their name. Nobody knows what's going on in your life. You don't, I'm not talking about that kind of thing when I say being part of a church. I'm talking about being part of a church where people actually know who you are. You know who they are. There's actually like, you actually go out to eat with people or, or do some kind of life with them. That's what I'm talking about, being part of a church. When you're part of that kind of church experience, uh, God uses other believers to bring you joy. If you're sitting there right now and you're looking at your Christian faith and saying, man, why am I so miserable? Why, why, am, why haven't I grown spiritually in years? Okay, why do I, my faith feel so dead? Okay? I am not saying that if you're genuinely part of a church, you will never have bad days. I'm not saying when you're part of a church, you will never have health problems, financial problems, relationship. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is amidst the normal course of broken darkness in your life. It's very important for you to be part of a church community relationally because what you need is the Lord to sustain you in spiritual joy amidst what is happening in your life. Paul needed that. 
you need that. Okay? And if I was to take it a step further, I would say this. Paul, as a super apostle, he's also an elder, he's a pastor. I'm, if Paul's up here, I'm like, way, I'm like way down here, me and the other elders, right? Compared to Paul. However, there's a similarity here, and it's this. You should be part of a church. I, I think we have a great church. I hope you do too. I think we have a loving church. I'm very proud of the elders and deacons and deaconesses. Very proud of them, okay? I think we've got a good thing going here. However, when you're part of a church, you should expect that the leadership of the church could write the same thing to you. That they love you. That they long to see you. Now, it doesn't mean that I personally am going to be able to show all these examples of how I personally have loved every single It's not possible. But generally, do you feel that the leaders love you? You should answer yes at whatever church you're part of. Okay, good. There you go. I got it. But you were the only one that said yes. Okay, I'm assuming the rest, you speak for everyone. But, um, and I, I, I'm not going to speak for the other elders, but I, I can tell you this for myself. Okay? It, it's, it's a better situation for you as a congregation when you have healthy leaders who are joyful about loving you. Let me say that again. It's a better situation for you as a congregation to look at the leadership and say, not only do they love us and bring joy to us as a congregation, but the opposite is also true. You should also say, you know what, am I as part of the congregation bringing joy to the leadership in the same way the Philippians brought joy to Paul? And that would be of benefit to you. Because if the leaders have joy, and I'm not talking about, hey, go buy me lunch or go, you know, do all this stuff. But when what brings me joy when I look at you guys is not so much, you know, did you buy me something? Although that's nice, right? <laughs> you want to buy me a new Tesla? I'm not going to stop you. But what brings me greater joy is um, when I personally, as Pastor Chris, look at the congregation and I see the following. I see, you know what? These guys, they're caring for one another. They're into the word of God. They're into prayer. You know, they'll, they'll be at a prayer meeting and, and, and prioritize prayer. These guys, they care about unbelievers that don't know Christ. These guys, maybe they're struggling in their faith, right? But they're striving for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3. I'm looking at my church, and they're wanting to do ministry towards one another. In fact, a lot of things that happen in this church, I find out about later on. I had no idea of how people were ministering to it. I mean, I tell the elders, that, that is so exciting to me. I mean, when I hear of those stories happening in your lives, I get fired up. I get excited about this church, okay? And uh, that brings me joy, and it's to your benefit. But conversely... I'll be honest with you, and this is true of any pastor, any pastor. Uh, they may have a different list, but if they're honest, they would share with you things that happen in a congregation that rob the pastor of joy. And uh, there are things that can happen in this church that um, have, you know, that rob me of joy. I, I have spent many nights, many, almost sleepless nights because I'm, I have anxiety over what's happening in the church. Um, I had one of those nights last night. You know, I didn't go to sleep till the wee hours of the night because I was thinking about situations in our church. Going, oh, was it my fault? You know, should I have done a better job in leading these people or preparing them? And then how, how do we fix these problems, some of these issues? And so I'll just be very brief on this. Um, one of the things that robs me of joy, and, and this is not unique to City Bible Church. I could say, you know, the other church that I've pastored, but I'll just mention three real quick. Number one is when people are unfaithful in ministry, and they take on responsibility and then just drop it. And that, that just drains me of life. When people are faithful in ministering to one another, to where I'm not holding everyone, you know, people's hands, I... Uh, 
I take great joy. When it doesn't, it robs me of joy. Number two, when I see believers who are stuck in the same spiritual place year after year after year, and I'm not talking about, man, you know, you got a health diagnosis, your family member died, and it's a rough season. I'm not talking about those circumstances. I'm talking about under generally normal circumstances, there's no spiritual fruit or growth year after year after year. And I would argue with Jesus and Paul um, that was not the primary group that they hung around with. Um, and I think the reason why is they were moving around meeting different people is because they were looking for where the fruit was in general. It doesn't mean they didn't care for the poor and suffering, but uh, there's a different aspect where you're talking about. And that, lastly, what robs me of joy is when I find out Christians profess Christ, but they have no desire as seen through their actions, not their intentions of their heart, but really the, the answer is what actually happens. They have no evidence of fellowship with the body of Christ. There's no corporate fellowship. People who call themselves Christians, and they're not actually here on Sundays. I'm not talking about vacation. I'm sick. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm going on work vacation or, or work trip. I'm not talking about those circumstances. I'm talking about month after month or year after year. There's no commitment to Christian fellowship. That robs me of joy. And so um, it kind of works both ways. And you want to be part of a church where the leadership is, like Paul said, could say, you, City Bible Church, you, Philippian Church, are my joy and crown of boasting. Um, last thing in verse 1, he says, stand firm. Stand firm. He's encouraging the Philippian Church to persevere, to endure. How many of us need to hear that this afternoon? The Lord wants you to stand firm, to persevere, to endure. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, listen to what he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, be alert, stand firm in faith, act like men, be strong. He said to the Ephesian church three times, When he was talking about spiritual warfare, he said, stand firm amidst spiritual warfare. He said to the Philippian church early on in Philippians chapter 1, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm with one mind striving side by side for the gospel. A massive theme in Paul's ministry, whatever church he was talking to, was to stand firm. Yes, it's nice to grow. Yes, sometimes we're suffering, but amidst all that stand firm... Take the posture of an athlete, a soldier, a hardworking farmer, and stand firm in your faith. Let me ask you a question. When you, uh, when you think about what impresses you in the Christian faith, when you think about the type of Christians that you're like, wow, I'm blown away, I'm impressed by you, what criteria do you use? What criteria do you use to be impressed by a Christian? I'll tell you what it was for me. For many years, what used to impress me the most about certain Christians I'd know would be one of the following. Number one, uh, I'd be very impressed if a person had vast theological knowledge. I mean, I'd be listening to these people on the radio. Uh, someone would, would present the theologian with a thorny theological question, and I'd be amazed at, at their knowledge and how they'd be able to answer it. How would I answer Wow, that's an amazing answer. I would be impressed by... Um, ministry gifting. Wow, look at how how gifted of a person that is. Look how gifted of a teacher they are. Look how gifted they are in faith and service, etc. I'd be amazed at talent. Look at how their ability to sing because I can't, right? And they're just they have this amazing ability to play guitar and to sing. I'd be impressed by past ministry success. Look at you know how big their church was, how much fruit that they have, how many people came to know Christ through their ministry. I'd be impressed by relational influence. Wow, look how popular this person is. Look how many people follow them. Look, they say a word and people... Now, those things count. They're important. And I can celebrate that in people's lives. And to an extent, I'm still impressed. But you know, as I've gotten older, that's not what impresses me most anymore about other Christians. You want to know what the number one thing that impresses me most now about Christians today? It's those who stand firm, who endure, who persevere to the end. Um, 
I, I would guess, I would guess, right, um, that in a marriage, if you were to ask, maybe not young couples, you know, who are getting married uh, for the first time, but my guess is if you were to ask couples in their 40s or 50s, somewhere around there, maybe not your 70s or 80s because the end is already there, and if you were to ask a couple who's married, and they're not like 25, but they're not 80, you know, maybe in their 40s and 50s, uh, what do you want most from your spouse? We could all come up with a list, right? But I think that up there at the top of a lot of people, they would say, what I want most from my spouse is that you stick around to the end. Okay? That you are with me, that you love me to the end. That this marriage endures to the very end. Because a lot of them don't. And the same is true in the Christian faith. I have come to realize as I've gotten older how many people who were uh, bright stars in the sky at one point just flamed out as a shooting star and just uh, crashed and burned. I have seen too many people who made professions of faith that did not endure through their 20s, 30s, 40s, and they just bail. They're gone. Who knows what happened to them? What impresses me now is people who stand firm and say, I have finished the race and I've done it well. Your spiritual trajectory may not go to the, to the right and upwards like that. Your spiritual trajectory over time may go like this and it goes like that. And it goes like this, this, this. But at the end, you have, you have held on to your faith. You've stood firm. I think that's what impresses me most. Who is going to make it to the end? If your journey goes like this, I'd much rather have you go like that and you stick around to the end than you just be this amazing ministry person and then bam, you're gone. One of the greatest definitions of, of success in the Christian faith is that you make it to the end and you stand firm. And if you are, I, it's better than if you have this amazing gifting and theological knowledge. In my view, that's what impressed me. So that's positively, right? Joy and crown, how that works, standing firm, love between the congregation and the pastor. But now let's look at the opposite in verse 2 and 3. We're going to look at the negative now. What happens to a church when there's disunity? And this was a situation in Philippi, you know, that Paul was proud of the Philippians, right? There's so many good things that he had to say about them. However, there was a threat at Philippi, and that threat was disunity. Now, he says in verse 2 and verse 3, um, he's talking about two specific women, and isn't it interesting, he actually names them. He names these women, Eodia and Syntyche. Now, I don't know what all the names were back then. There cannot be that many Eodias and Syntyches around. Okay? I don't think Philippi was like this mega church of 10,000 people, where it's like there, there's 20 Eodias and Syntyches. Who could? No. I think when he's saying this, now remember, when he's writing Philippians, this epistle would have been read to the entire church. This is not an epistle to one person. That, you know, it's private letter, right? The whole church would have heard this. And so think about what's happening. Paul, from his cell in Rome, who knows the Philippians, is writing a letter to the Philippians that he knows will be read to the Philippians. And now he comes to a point where he's actually mentioning by name two women, Eodia and Syntyche. When this is read, everybody would have known who Idodia and Syntyche is. Everybody would have known what the issue was. Okay? So this, and Paul's actually bringing this to light, is what he's doing. And what, what do we know about Iodia and Syntyche? We don't know much. This is really the only mention of who they were, but we know the following from verse 2 and verse 3. Number one, we know from uh, verse 2 that uh, they were in some kind of disagreement. That's why he's saying, I entreat both of you to agree. Because they're not agreeing. There's a dispute. We don't know the nature of the dispute. We just know it was a big enough deal. It was a big enough deal for Paul to mention. Number two, 
We know when he says in verse two, in the Lord. So we know that these women were Christian. And he, we know that Paul wants them to reconcile by seeking out the Lord, both of them. Verse three, number three, what we know is that, um, that the leadership of the church had to get involved. Why do we know that? Because when he says in verse three, yes, I ask you also, true companion. That true companion that he's mentioning in verse three is probably some kind of elder at the church. We don't know who it is, but it's, it's likely that that was an elder. Uh, number four, we know that these women needed the help of the church leadership. That's why he says, help these women. Number five, we know that in the past, these women were not just believers, but they had partnered with Paul and a man named Clement. Verse three, we don't know who Clement was exactly. We have guesses, but we know exactly who he was. And, number, and we also know that they had partnered in the gospel with the rest of Paul's fellow workers. So these women were well-known. They had done gospel work for the kingdom in the past. And um, we know that their names were written in the book of life, which we'll end the sermon on. But this is what we know about them. They were true believers. There was a disagreement. Uh, the church leadership had to get involved. And, uh, and Paul, and not only the church leadership, but Paul as an apostle. Think about it. He's in a cell. He's under Roman house arrest for two years. This had to be a big enough deal for Paul to write from Rome back to modern day uh, Greece to mention two specific women. The reason why this was not some, uh, uh, we have a disagreement on where to hold the party. Okay. This was a big deal that was threatening the, the Philippian church. And so I want to mention some things about church unity and disunity. Church unity and disunity. All right. Number one, uh, God desires church unity. He desires church unity for every church on at least three different levels. On at least three different levels. Number one, God desires doctrinal unity. Okay. Elders in a church, the main teachers or elders and deacons at some level, they should hold on to the faith, and elders should teach the faith with unity. Um, there should not be massive disagreements on core doctrinal beliefs. There should be unity of doctrine about what is being taught in a church on the core issues. Number two, um, God desires unity in a church in terms of relationships. Just normal relationships. Now, when we say unity in relationships, we are not talking about, uh, you know, there was a disagreement between two people in a small group, you know, at one time. That happens all the time in every church every week. He's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relational unity to the extent to where it's not affecting the whole church. That's God's desire, that there's relational unity. And number three, God desires not only doctrinal, relational unity, he desires missional unity, missional unity. Whatever part your church you're a part of, there's a mission. There's multiple missions to make disciples of Jesus Christ. How does that look in Sirius and the surrounding area? How does that look in downtown LA and the surrounding area? It's unique and organic to any church you're a part of. So there's got to be a unity, not just of doctrine relationships, but of where we're going. Are we going in the same direction? Are we all rowing in the same direction, right? And when you have a church that is unified doctrinally, relationally, in terms of mission, guess what? You got a powerful church. You got the type of church where the gates of hell will not stand against, Matthew 16. Do you want City Bible Church to be that type of church? You should. I do. That's where, like, the miracles happen of people's changed lives. And you don't want to waste your time. You see, people don't come to church. You don't visit a church, and you walk in the door, and you're like, if you see churches that are in doctrinal chaos, that are in relational chaos, that everyone's like a herd of cats going all these, you don't want to be part of that. You want to be a part of a church where that is that unity, and that's uh, I believe City Bible Church, for the most part, I'm very proud of the doctrinal, relational, and missional unity we have, number one. Number two, what are the types of disunity that wreck a church? What are the types of disunity that you see in Scripture that can bring the entire thing down? Uh, things that wreck a church are, number one, when false teaching is allowed into the church. 
False teachers walk in the door. They're not addressed by the elders. People start bringing, oh, you know, I heard this guy on YouTube and I'm spreading this, you know, these false doctrines in the church. The elders don't do anything about it. False teaching spreads. Uh, that can wreck a church. Uh, that's why there's so many warnings that Jesus gave and Paul and, and Peter and so forth against false teachers. Number two, a second thing that can wreck a church in terms of disunity is unrestrained sin that is allowed to permeate like gangrene growing through a congregation. You start to see people in sexual immorality. You start to see people being divisive on purpose in a church. Elders don't do anything about it. That division grows. The relationships split. People leave the church. People leave, uh, you know, just fall away from the faith because they're so discouraged. Relational, uh, unrestrained sin. And thirdly, uh, just when there's just general disunity as a whole. False teaching, unrestrained sin, and disunity can wreck a church. And that's why, um, that's why, number three, you need elders and deacons in a church. You need to have biblical elders and deacons in a church. Why? That's why when you look at 1 Timothy 3, when you look at Titus 1, where it lays out the spiritual qualifications for deacons and elders, that's why God says, you know, the men elders and the men and women deacons and deaconesses you have to look at the leaders of your life. Elders are chief leaders and teachers. Deacons are chief servants. And you've got to look at the leadership of a church and say, you know what? These types of men, elders, and men and women deacons should exhibit unity in their own life. You should look at their family. Is their family in chaos or is there unity? Um, you could look at their marriage. In general, is there unity? You could look at how they manage the church, etc., and elders and deacons are there to provide discernment for the church to say, all right, you know, there can be some disagreement on certain doctrines, but here's the discernment where we cannot have disagreement in terms of doctrine. That's where you become false, but maybe only smaller issues. And here's how we're going to discern the two. Uh, elders and deacons come along and say, you know what? Okay, this level of disagreement, that's normal, but this is where it crosses the line. This is where it starts to threaten the harmony of the body of Christ. And it is our discernment as elders or elders and deacons to say, no, that's where the line gets crossed on that. Elders and deacons are important because they say, this is where general struggle with sin is normal. And this is where it's a threat to the congregation. And there's a discernment of when it crosses over. Um, one more point on this is that um, disunity in a church, Eodia and Sintaichi. Notice this. We don't know how big Philippi was. But we know, again, it was big enough of an issue for the leadership to get involved, Clement and the true, compa or the true companion, right? verse 3, and we know it's big enough for Paul to write about as an apostle. This was a situation between two women, Iodia and Sintaichi. And notice this. It was a big enough issue between two individuals for it to now threaten the church. And a lot of times, disunity happens in a church, and it doesn't start big. It starts small. Two women. But for some reason, these women were probably leaders in the church too. These were not, uh, these two women just visit every now and then. They were probably had influence. There was such a disagreement that wasn't being resolved. It was now a threat to the Philippian church. And Paul knew this. And he was telling the church at Philippi, you got to stop it. You, you, you have to turn to Iodia and Syntyche and say, this is not honoring to the Lord. You need to stop. You need to seek out the Lord. And you need to find a way to be in harmony because what example you are setting is leading to division in the church and it's now threatening the church. And Paul's saying, look, true companion, you cannot allow this to happen. You would be irresponsible to allow this to happen in your church. 
And so that is really the role and the responsibility that Paul's saying that he feels he's telling the true companion to do is there is a certain level of disagreement that can be allowed in a normal situation. But when it crosses the line, then it becomes a matter where it has to be stopped because it threatens the entire church. And elders or elders and deacons cannot allow those situations to happen. Why? Because it can wreck the entire thing. And then Satan has the victory, which we cannot allow. So um, with that said, the last thing we're going to say today and just touch upon is this last phrase. He says, their names, the names of these believers are written in the book of life. The book of life. How many of you ever heard that phrase before? Probably most of you. One of the things that I pray for uh, Darcy, Keen, and Ethan regularly when we pray for them at night is we say, I say, um, Lord, thank you. Thank you that Darcy and Keen, and I believe Ethan too, that their names have all been written in the Lamb's book of life. That they can know that before the foundation of the earth, Lord has chosen them, elected them, predestined them, and uh, written their names so that they will have a secure citizenship in heaven, Paul says, um, your citizenship is in heaven, but also that uh, they have eternal life, right? And why do I say that? I say that because they've all made professions of faith that I, as a parent, believe is genuine, uh, and, and, and that's true. When Paul says the book of life, you can look this up later. You can look at Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 20. Um, I'll summarize. That phrase, book of life, is incredibly significant because when you look at Revelation 13, Revelation 20, what we learn is the following. We learn that God has foreordained people's names to be written in the book of life. And when that book of life is opened, if your name is written in there that God has written, then that is your entrance into the kingdom of God, your name is written in the book of life because God has chosen to put you in there before the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation 13. And you, your name is in there. Why? How do you know? Because you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why your name is written in the book of life. But you're, you have come to faith because God has foreordained that you came to faith. How do you know that you're foreordained? It's because you actually became uh, a believer. And he says, it says in the scripture that there are believers whose names are written in the book of life. But conversely, there are also unbelievers. And those unbelievers do not have their names written in the book of life. And that is a very serious thing. Because Revelation says, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, which means that you know Jesus, you've come to eternal life, what does that mean for you? It means the following. Number one, it means in the end times, according to the book of Revelation, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will bow down to worship the Antichrist. When this guy appears, great military, political, economic leader, him and the false prophet who makes people bow down to him and worship him, one world kind of government, one world economy, that kind of thing in the future, uh, you're going to bow down to that person, worship them instead of worship God, and then it's over for you, Okay. And secondly, if your name is not written in the book of life, what happens in Revelation 20 is that every unbeliever, the Bible says, will come at the final judgment before something called the judgment, I'm sorry, before the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment is a judgment that every unbeliever faces. No believer will face the great white throne judgment. It is only unbelievers they will stand before god and it says the books in revelation 20 will be opened and the book of life and other books and god will open oh your name is not written in the book of life and what are these other books these other books have written down god has written down every thought you've ever thought every word you've ever spoken everything you've done your entire life and he's going to read it back to you and it says, according to Romans chapter 2, when that is read back to you as an unbeliever, your conscience, Romans 2, will alternatively accuse you 
and excuse you. Meaning what? When you're hearing God read back to you everything you've ever thought and did and said, your own conscience will say, oh yeah, that, that was good. That was good. I did that. That's right. That's right, God. I did that. That's good. Oh, oh wait. Oh, you knew about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Oh yeah. 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 I remember that. I did that. And, and, I'm just, and it says your own conscience will accuse you. And there's no savior to save you. And so the book of life, you want, you want to know that your name has been written in there. How do you know? We were not there when God chose whose names get written in there in eternity past. But what we can do is we can know and have assurance that our name is written. How? Not because we can go back into eternity past, but we can know because how? Because we have come to faith now. And that is a validation of what God has foreordained in the past. I don't know whose name is written in the book of life. God knows I don't. But what I can say by observation is, yeah, my best guess and my belief is those professing Christians who place their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to say, I follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I trust in Jesus as, uh, for, to transfer me from the kingdom of darkness uh, that, uh, that, that Satan rules to the kingdom of the Son of God, where there is redemption, Colossians chapter 1. I trust in that. Even beyond that trust, I have demonstrated that in public declaration through public baptism, which is just a public way of confirming what I already believe in my heart. And I look at that, and I look at the fruit in people's life and say, you know what? I believe. I believe it's genuine. And you're enduring in your faith, may not go you know, completely up, but you're genuinely enduring, and you have not given up Christ. Man, uh, yeah, I would say that's good evidence. Your name has been written in the book of life. What about you? Are you here today? And you're looking at these guys, man, Iodius and Taichi, Clement, True Companion, Philippians. Great, their names are written in the book of life. What about you? Has your name been written in the book of life? How do you know? How do you know? You know because you can look at your life and say, yeah, I believe. I've trusted in Jesus. I'm following Jesus. And that, that there's an assurance there. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you've never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe you did it as a kid and, you know, uh, yeah, fourth grade, third grade, Sunday school, I, I did something, but there's no evidence really of that in your life. You know, no drawing to God's word and prayer and, and the Lord and, and trusting the Lord. And you're, you're not really sure, right? then we're not really sure. <laughs> and you should not leave this place until you're really sure. Even today. The Bible says make today the day of salvation. What that means for you is that you should not leave this place and say, I want to know. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if you believe in your heart, that Jesus has risen from the dead, number one. And number two, if you confess him as Lord of your life, you will be saved. Have you done that? Have you said to God, I don't want money to be my Lord. I don't want Satan to be my Lord. I don't want my girlfriend or my boyfriend to be my Lord. I don't even want to be my Lord. I can't even trust any of that. What I want and what I declare unashamedly is that Jesus is my Lord. I follow him. My allegiance is to him. He is my Lord. He is the one that saved me. He is God. And I place my trust. Have you done that? Is there any evidence in your life that you've done that? And secondly, do you believe that he not only died on the cross as the son of God, but he actually rose again from the dead? Romans 10, again. Why is that important? It's because when he rose from the dead, he conquered death. And... Um, that means he's alive in you today for those of us who believe. Have you done those two things? Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe he has risen from the dead and followed him and you follow him. And if you have, if you have, we're going to receive communion in a moment now. Okay? 
And when we receive communion, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, they would eat together. It was called a love feast, right? And when they would come together in communion, uh, it would be a sign that they are one in Christ. It would be a sign that they were in good fellowship with one another. Right? And when we receive communion, the communion table is open to any professing believer. And Paul says that when you receive communion, you need to examine yourself. You need to examine your need for Christ. Do I need Christ? Do I need his crucifixion? and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. His broken body represented by the bread, his shed blood represented by the juice. And that crunch of the bread, meaning his crushed body, that crunch of the bread in my mouth, viscerally representing the crushing of sin in my life, that juice that I taste, that sweetness representing the sweet grace of God in my life through Christ Jesus, that juice in my mouth, going down to my stomach, representing also not just his shed blood, but kind of the the cleansing of sin in my life by his blood. And when you receive communion, when I receive, God is not in the elements, as Catholics teach, but there is something that he does. And he does that because whenever you remember the Lord and come to him in prayer, God is always at work. Okay? And so the Bible says, examine yourself. I'm going to invite the worship team up right now. And I'm going to do two things. Um, I'm going to invite anyone who has never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, or if you want to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ right here in this moment, you'll have an opportunity to do that in a few moments. And secondly, I'm just going to lead you in communion. Um, Actually, let's do that right now. I want us to take communion together at the same time. So I'm going to actually invite you, if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, to actually get out of your seat, go to the communion table, get your elements, come back to your seat. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and we're going to take it together. Let's do that right now. I'm not sure right now, but even if we don't, if you don't have all of your elements, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And so it is during this time right now, we are going to do two things. I would like everyone to bow in prayer right now. And um, if you are here and you have never made a profession of faith to believe, to trust, and to follow Jesus Christ, or... If you have been away from the Lord for some time, um, I'm going to pray for you and make this the prayer of your heart. And secondly, I'm going to lead those of us who believe in uh, in the Lord in communion. I'm going to guide you through that. Lord, as we come to you right now in prayer, uh, if for those of us who have been away, who do not believe, Lord, we profess faith. In you, Jesus Christ, we believe you are Lord. We choose to commit our lives to follow you as Lord. We believe you died on the cross for our sin and have risen from the dead to bring us life. That our allegiance is not to anything of the world, the flesh, or the devil, but our allegiance is to you, Jesus, you alone. And so I receive you, Lord. I ask that you come into my life. 
your Holy Spirit, come into my life to make me right with you, to make me new, to bring me peace, to bring me forgiveness, to bring me eternal life. And I renounce my former wicked ways. I choose to follow you and you alone as Lord and trust in you and you alone from my transference from the kingdom of Satan and a destiny in hell to the kingdom of God and a destiny in heaven. And that is my commitment. That is my belief, Lord. And if that is your prayer, the Lord has heard that. And if you meant it, um, the Lord is willing to receive you. So make that your prayer if you have it. And secondly, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, take this moment to examine your life, your need for Christ's forgiveness, your need for Christ's cleansing. What area of your life do you need that? Bible says that the reason why some of some Christians at Corinth were sick, the reason why some of them were dying, um, is because they had received communion in an unworthy manner. They haven't examined themselves. What you're about to partake in right now has spiritual power. God is overseeing this time, and that can be a good thing if you come to the Lord and say, Lord. I admit my sin. Lord, I trust in Christ. Lord, I take this, I receive this as my declaration together as a church that I am part of a wider body of Christians that I am committed to, and not just to you, but to these other believers. And so sanctify me through this, Lord. The Lord is going to do a work here. And so if that is you, if that is you, Go ahead and receive now um, the broken body of Christ symbolized through the bread. And go ahead and put that in your mouth and chew it. And um, as your declaration, you are identifying with the crucified body of Christ. And if that is you, go ahead and do that right now. And go ahead and receive the juice, identifying with the shed blood of Christ in your life. God is at work in your life because you're coming to him in prayer in remembrance and confession and your need for Christ and you need that church you need that amen and amen I need that and so thank you Lord for our time together may your grace upon grace be upon us as we have remembered you through this time of communion and your word and prayer in Jesus name amen and amen